Open your Bibles tonight, if you will, and turn to Ezra in the Old Testament. Uh, You're passing through the books of the Old Testament when you get to Kings and Chronicles. It's right after 2 Chronicles. And uh, I hope that you brought your Bible with you tonight. And for those of you that join us by live stream, I hope you have a Bible that you can open up as we go through the Word of God together. This will just be somewhat of an introduction message, if you will, uh, to try to deal a little bit about the book of Ezra, to give you an oversight about the book tonight, and uh, we'll deal some out of the first chapter here for the setting of the book. Lord, we thank you for this place. We thank you for these people that have given their time tonight. We pray, Lord, for the mighty power of God to move on each one of our hearts, quicken our spirits, quicken our minds, and Lord, may we be receptive to what you have to say to us through your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, as we stand on the brink of a new year for the brand new opportunity that you've given to us to experience greater things in this coming year than we've ever experienced before. Lord, regardless of the thing that we're coming out of, we know that you're leading us into greater things in front of us. So I pray that we'll each one be obedient to you. And Lord, may I do my best to lift you up tonight in Jesus' name, amen, amen. The book of Ezra, I'll be looking at several places in the first chapter. You can join me here in just a moment, but just to give you a background, the book of Ezra is really a book about revival, renewal, and restoration. And I couldn't think of a better subject or topic to deal with going into a new year because would you agree with me, we need revival. And I think that you'll also agree with me that a lot of people, they have just been beat down by this world and the world system and everything in them is drained out of them and so many people need renewal. Not only revival, but renewing, renewing of our mind, renewing of our spirit. And then two, I think there's some folks that need restoration. They're in the same position that the Jews are in in this particular book and we'll relate a little bit of that to you, but it shows how God restores once again. Do you know that God can put things back better than they ever were before? And it all comes down to our obedience to him. And that's what we find in this book. Now, Jewish tradition teaches us and has long taught that the author of this book is Ezra. Ezra has been attributed to its authority to write it. Ezra is a different type of character in your Bible because uh, we know a few things about Ezra is mentioned in other places uh, here in the word of God and in the first six chapters, you don't even read much about Ezra, but you read more of his name from the seventh through the 10th chapter of this particular book. Ezra was a scribe. He was not only a scribe, but he was a teacher. You go back to Chronicles and when the dedication of the temple took place, uh, you'll read in Chronicles, again, you'll read in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter eight, I believe it is, where Ezra read the word of God and taught the word of God and the people were blessed by the teaching of the word of God. God's word should always bless us. We should receive it with gladness and see what God's saying to us. And that's what Ezra is doing here. He was a direct descendant of Aaron, the high priest. So he was also a priest. So we find him as a scribe and we find him as a scholar. And you'll see phrases over and over again in this because his contemporary was Nehemiah. In fact, 
in a Hebrew Bible, if you'd go to a Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible has Nehemiah and Ezra together as one book. It's during our English translation that we divided them because one really plays into the other because they're all contemporary. Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and then once again, Ezra, all are talking about events that occurred tandem, one right after another, and they're in conjunction with each other. We read in the book of Ezra two separate time periods. From chapter one through chapter six, we see that the overseer of this remnant that is returning to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple of God, that it is led by Zerubbabel or Zerubbabel, however you prefer to pronounce it, both pronunciations are correct. But Zerubbabel leads this group and it goes for a period of about 23 years on this first return that they're building again and restoring the city of Jerusalem. But after some 23 years, when you get to chapter seven, you move forward almost 60 or 70 years. And by that time, they had worked for that first 23 years hard, but then they got discouraged and they let up. It's kind of like a lot of Christians when they first get saved, they're full of excitement and they can't do enough for God. But after they get on the journey for a few years and things begin to discourage them, then they feel like I've done my dues and I can let up. I've fought the last battle. I'm tired of fighting the battles. So they didn't mean to do wrong. They just let up. They got discouraged. They felt like that everything that they tried to do, it, it was, there was a force there fighting against them, whether it be their own people, whether it be enemies, whether it be skeptics, whether it be people that's mocking. They just felt like when I move forward, all I catch is more difficult problems in my life. So they got discouraged and they just stopped working on the building of God. They just let it go. They went so far and they just stopped. Can I remind you of something? You're not home yet. And there's no stopping place as long as we're here. Now I realize that we all can't do what we used to do and we all may not have the same abilities and some of the things you used to do, you may not be able to do anymore, but you're still not home yet. So if you're not home yet, God still has something for you to do. That's why he has left you here. So along comes this great figure, Ezra. After this 60 or 70 years of discouragement, he comes back with 2,000 people. And these 2,000 people spark a spiritual revival beginning in chapter seven through the end of the book. And with that spiritual revival, they get back to work. They get back to doing something for God. I don't want us to go into this new year coasting. I want us to say we need to move forward more than we've ever moved forward and do more for God than we've ever done. We need greater vision, greater burdens, greater desires than we've ever had and determine in our heart we've got great things ahead of us and you know this year could be the biggest year of revival that Rubyville Church has ever experienced. So he was motivating them and he was encouraging them. When you get to the end, end of the book, you find out they have renewed a spiritual obedience to God's covenant and were in a better place than they were when they were taken away into captivity. 
So it's a book about a group of people that have been carried away in captivity. Now God is bringing them back to their home, returning them to a place where God can get glory out of their life by rebuilding the temple. Now let's look at a few things very quickly. And don't worry, I've got this so I can cut off and quit any time. Amen, amen. You'll find if you look at the first chapter and the first verse, let's look at the first half of that. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the, that, the Lord, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Stop. Cyrus is the king of Persia. You'll find out that God really used three unlikely sources to cause this to happen. He used Cyrus, he used Artaxerxes, and he used Darius. They were all contemporary kings following one right after another, giving decrees for them to not only go back, but also helping to fund them to rebuild the work of God. So God took people that were supposed to be the, these are the leaders. They first went into Babylonian captivity, Persia overthrew Babylon, and they later became known as the Medes and Persians, but he took the people that were the enemies of God and made them allies to God's people. They were the ones that were fighting against God's people, bringing them into captivity, but now here they are helping them. Do you know that sometimes the greatest blessings in your life can come from unlikely places? Sources that you never thought of. God has a way of providing for you. But he said there's a reason why he did it in that first half of that first verse. He did it because Jeremiah had prophesied it and he said, I want my word to be fulfilled. So the first thing we learn is that God always reveals his word. He doesn't want his word to be hidden to anybody. You may not understand it now, but if you seek him, he'll reveal it to you. And here Jeremiah's prophecy had been disregarded and hidden for all of these years. But God says at the beginning of this first verse, he said, now my word's going to be fulfilled. What they didn't understand when Jeremiah said it, now they understand it. Can I tell you something? I am not the kind of pastor that preaches in, in regard to what you're going through in the moment. I'm not a reactive pastor. I don't preach reactively. I don't pray reactively. I believe God knows tomorrow just like I know yesterday. In fact, he knows tomorrow better than I know yesterday because he never forgets. His mind is always in tune with what's happening and God knows the future and what he's saying in this particular passage is just because you don't understand it now. It, it, it doesn't mean that God's not going to reveal it to you. God goes before us. That's why the word of God is so important. If you don't have the word of God in your heart, when you hit something in this new year, and you will hit something, trust me, if you don't let the word of God be planted in you now, then there won't be anything to battle that when you get on down the road. So God goes before him, gives the word, didn't matter if they obeyed it, if they disregarded it, it's still the word of God and it'll still come to pass. 
So he said, first of all, God is teaching us. God always reveals his word. His word will be fulfilled. Just because Jesus has not come again yet doesn't mean that God's word is void and that it is not going to happen. He said that if he went away, he will come again. And you can rest assured what God says, that's what God will do. Look at the latter part of that. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also into writing, saying, not only that, but here they are in captivity over 70 years. That's a long time. The span of a generation or greater, depending on how you view a generation. And for that 70 years, it looked like nothing was happening. Nothing was going on. Can I tell you something? The beauty of that last half of that first verse, God is always doing something even when you see nothing. God's always doing something. He was stirring up the heart and spirit of Cyrus. They they couldn't see Cyrus's heart. They didn't know what God was doing, but God was still doing it and he knew the purpose of all of it. The Lord says that he's always going to do what is best for us at the right time. You may not see it right now, but that doesn't mean that God is not working on your behalf. When you get to verse two, thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Now that's a strange statement, but you'll never go anywhere until you grasp this. Kings, preachers, politicians, prophets, teachers, philosophers, they don't rule the world. God rules the world. Cyrus said the kingdoms of the earth was given unto me, but do you see who he credits that to? To God. He's saying it's because the kingdoms of of this earth have been given to him because the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Do you know something? Everything you have, God gave you. God says if you've got it, It's because I'm the one that has blessed you with it. Cyrus had power, authority, was a king, but yet he would have been nothing without God blessing him. When you begin to understand, my car's not my car, my home's not my home, my bank account's not my bank account, my life is not my life. Everything that I have, it's because God has given it to me. This church is not my church. God has given us this church. Every good thing that we have, every good gift comes down from the Father of light out of heaven above with whom there's no variableness, no shadow of turning. If you have it, it's because God said, I gave it to you. The thing we also see, look at the end of that. Why did God give it to him? In that second half of that verse, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. He said that God, he gave me all of that for a purpose, and that is to build a house, not just any house. It's the temple, God's house. Now, 
that may not mean much to you. You have your Bibles open, don't you? Turn back, if you will, to Isaiah 44. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28. Let me read you a verse of scripture about Cyrus. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28. Cyrus is taking authority to say, I'm here in Babylon, former Babylon. I'm I'm the leader of the land, but God's given me charge to send you back to Jerusalem to build the city and build the temple. Well, he seemed pretty confident, didn't he? Did he get that in a, in a dream? Did he get that in a vision? Why did he seem so confident? I'll tell you why, because you're always on solid ground when you stand on the word of God. Because the word of God is sure. And Isaiah 44, 28 is this prophecy of Isaiah. And Isaiah said, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built unto the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. I think there's no doubt about it who this prophecy is concerning. It's concerning Cyrus. And it also tells us what he's gonna do. He's gonna go back to Jerusalem. He's gonna perform to God's pleasure the building of Jerusalem. Thou shalt be built and to the temple the foundation shall be laid. He's going to be responsible for Jerusalem being built and the foundation of the temple being laid and later prophecy the temple actually being rebuilt once again. You say, well, that, what's that mean, Cal? Isaiah said that 150 years before Ezra was born, Cyrus was born. 150 years before Cyrus was ever born, God said 150 years from now, there's gonna be a baby born and when that baby comes, he's gonna command my people to go back to Jerusalem and build the city again and he's gonna command that the temple be built once again. Pretty amazing if you ask me. Talk about God going before and you're worried about what you're gonna to do tomorrow? God said, I've already taken care of this thing 150 years out. In fact, God can go one further than that from the foundation of the world. He'd already prepared a plan that he knew that man would sin, but yet he said, I'll go 4,000 years in the future and I've got a plan where there'll be one that'll be born of a virgin that has the power to forgive of sin and set men and women free. And he said, I'm moving before you. You know what he's saying to you and to me through all of this? You're not forgotten. Where you're at, God hasn't forgotten you. He saw what you were coming into. He knows where you're at. He knows what you're going through, but God has not forsaken nor forgotten you. The other thing we see about this, let's look, if you will, uh, in, in verse three and four. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. You know, he's giving us the reason. Why is God so focused on Jerusalem? That was the question I asked when I read that. Why is he so focused on Jerusalem through this king in Persia? All these miles away, he takes a king that he is just his heart is fixed on Jerusalem. Why did God do that? 
because he wasn't doing it for them at that time. God said, because I've got another plan that when that city is rebuilt 500 years from now, I've got a plan of redemption that's going to be fulfilled. And do you know that Jesus could have never passed through the gates of the city into the city and they could never have cried Hosanna to God in the highest. They could never have realized that Jesus had come as the Messiah. They could never have crucified him. They could never have risen up against him if there wasn't a Jerusalem. If it wasn't rebuilt, then the prophecies could not have been fulfilled that God said concerning him. He couldn't have rode upon the colt. All of the other things that was mentioned of the prophecies that would come to pass, being crucified without the gates, without the walls of the city. If there was no city, that couldn't have happened. God said, I'm not only doing it for you right now, I'm doing it for the entire world that they can all benefit from it later on. God was giving a plan that not only affected them now, but also affected their heirs in the future. So he allows them to be a part of all of it. The Bible says, whosoever remaineth, in verse four, in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now let, let me get this clear to you. What God's saying is God will use us to build a building. There's people here tonight that can testify to the fact through all of the building projects that this church has gone through, God used certain people. And God used many of us that have been here through all of that to see this building built. But God uses us to build a building, but his purpose isn't the building. See, I know a lot of people, they feel like their only purpose is, is if I'm building something, I gotta build something. I deal with a lot of pastors and they, they just gotta build something. It don't matter if it has any purpose, if they waste millions of dollars, they just gotta build something. It's quiet now. No, he said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you and use you to build the building because my purpose of the building is to build you. See, it doesn't do any good to build a church if you don't have church in it. Doesn't do any good to build a pulpit if you never preach from it. Doesn't do any good to have a hymnal if you never sing from it. Are you with me tonight? It doesn't do any good to have these things for God if we don't use them for God. The reason God put this building here is so that people can come and hear the good news of Christ, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and see their life changed and to be built up in the most holy faith. God says that's our job, not to build the building, but when we build the building, let the building be used to build us up. So the question is, what are we gonna let God build in our life this year through this place that he's put us in? Another thing you need to see, look, look in verse five. 
Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priest and the Levites with all them whose spirit God had raised. I think there's an important lesson to be learned here. Do you know that God has made every one of us, God has allowed us to have influence. Influence is like an opinion. You have one. The question is, does your influence line up with your Bible? And he's saying, these leaders, he's saying to these leaders, I didn't just raise you up and let you come into the priesthood and giving you these positions and this place of authority just so you'd have a title. I want you to use your influence on the people so that the people will come together to work for a purpose of my glory and of my honor. If you use your influence for anything other than what God intended your influence to be used for, it won't be a blessing, it'll be a curse. We all like to hear about influencing others and influencing friends, but I'm here to tell you, if you only influence them to bank their money and you only influence them to do certain things and you only influence them to be a, a better at a particular thing and you don't influence them for the glory of God or impress on them anything about the Lord, we fail with our influence. God gives us our influence for one purpose, that is to give it back to him, to let people see without him, we can't do anything. He's the reason that we're able to do anything that we are. Our influence will impact others. So it's a matter of responsibility. He closes out that particular verse by saying as well, if you look in verse five, the end of that, to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beast, and with precious things beside all that was willingly offered. You know what God is saying? We have no excuse every one of us has something to offer God. And what God wants from us, it's not our stuff, it's our obedience. And God said, you may not be the one that's doing the physical task. Cyrus wasn't there rebuilding anything. He didn't lay his hand to any of it. God used Zerubbabel first and then used Ezra second, then used Nehemiah as well, but the, but. Cyrus himself didn't lay his hand in it, but you cannot argue the fact God used Cyrus to get it all going and to keep it going. In other words, he did his part. He obeyed God to do what he could do. You can't do something for somebody else. You can only obey God for yourself. But if we're obedient to God, we begin to understand obedience is better than sacrifice. And the more we obey God, the more we grow in grace and strength and knowledge of his word. Let me give you something else. Let's begin reading with verse seven. Verse seven. Also, Cyrus the king brought forth vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar, had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Methodrath, the treasure, and numbered them 
unto Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this is the number of them, 30 chargers of gold, a thousand chargers of silver, nine and 20 knives, 30 basins of gold, silver basins of a second sort, 410, and other vessels, a thousand. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up with them of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying God is worthy of our sacrifice. In terms we all understand, you can't outgive God. This is pretty amazing to me. All of these years, and it's been in the enemy's hands, but it's all preserved. God took care of all of it. And what do they do? They turn right around and give it back to the God that gave it to them. Do you realize that everything God gives to us, he says, I give it to you, but are you willing to give it back to me? He may not require it, but we ought to be willing to. We ought to say, Lord, if you touch my heart about it, that's exactly what I'll do. So he's teaching the valuable lesson. We serve a God that is worthy of everything that we can ever offer to him. And you cannot make enough. You cannot make enough out about our great God and his power that he has because he is worthy of everything we offer him. And when we come into his house, the very least that we can offer him is our praise and worship for all that he has done, he is doing, and he is going to do. He ends it all by saying this, the end of verse 11 says they bring them up with them of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem. It's talking about the Babylonian captivity when the enemy had their stuff. When the enemy had control. And God says, I want to remind you of the captivity. Now, now don't Don't be upset until you hear the end of what I'm gonna say. God is really saying this entire captivity could have been avoided. It was all avoidable. God basically said, you do what I say. And if you don't do what I say and you disobey me, I will destroy your temple. Because God said, I don't need a temple. I need you. I mean, there's people all around the world worshiping God this very day. They don't have a church to go to, but they're still worshiping God. And really the Lord's trying to tell them something. You do what I say, and if you don't do what I say, I will do what I say. So you do it or you face punishment for it. Things in life that come our way come for one of two reasons. Either it is the enemy that has brought it into our life or we have disobeyed God. Now we don't hear much about discipline from God anymore but, and I know people don't believe in discipline 
Trust me, I know they don't believe in discipline. We have no discipline left, and I'm not referring to parents with their children. We have no discipline left in our society. There's no discipline left. None at all. I mean, we're just, we're just running around crazy now. There's no guidelines. You let things keep going, folks, and I'm telling you, they're gonna have to lock up the same people and let the criminals run loose. We have no discipline left in our society. It's gone. I feel for teachers. I feel so sorry for you. You ought to say, thank God, God didn't call Cal to be a teacher because you'd have to bail me out. The problem now isn't the kids, it's the parents. I mean, there's no, there's no guidelines, there's no discipline. Uh, referees are afraid to be a referee now. If they make a wrong call, they might get shot. And God bless those of you that's in law enforcement. You could not pay me enough money to pull a car over at three in the morning and stick my head in their window on a darkened night because this world knows no discipline and has no respect for authority, including the authority of God. And when we have taken God out of our society and God out of our homes and God out of our churches and God out of our schools, we now have a nation that knows nothing about discipline. We now have churches that know nothing about discipline. If anything comes about through church discipline, I'll just go start my own. I, I deal with it constantly. I preach something on TV. You, you know, you may, you may find this hard to believe, but there are a lot of people who don't like me. And as soon as you say something on television that they don't like, they, the first thing they do, they get mad, do whatever in their home. Next thing, they're gonna, they're gonna let you know that they're mad. And basically when they let you know, I disagree with that, I don't go along with that. And then the third thing they do, they say, I'm changing my membership from channel three to channel eight. <laughs> they just change channels because they want no discipline. But you can't do anything great for God without discipline. Now you can either do it the easy way or the hard way. The easy way is God says it and we do it. Or the hard way is we don't do it. God teaches us a lesson through discipline and hopefully we learn from that lesson. And God reminded him, it's your fault that you're in captivity. If you feel bound up, you don't feel free in worship and you're in this church, I wanna remind you, it's your fault. Nobody else's fault. It's your fault. If you don't do what God says to do, then you're putting yourself in your own bondage. But let me tell you the great thing about discipline. Now, I challenge you. This is the rebuilding again of the temple, the regathering of the Jews. It is a spiritual awakening and a spiritual revival. I challenge you to do this. I've done it for days and days and days. I have looked I have searched, I have gone to chronological Bibles, I've looked at the timelines. When God gets through with them and they are really sorry for what they've done and Ezra comes back and this revival comes, I cannot find anywhere in the word of God 
after this event where collectively as a nation they ever worshiped foreign gods again. What led to the captivity of Babylon? They were worshiping false idols. They forsook the true and the living God. But you never read that again after. I'm not saying individuals might have done it, but as a nation to this day, the Jews have one longing. You don't believe it? You go to the Wailing Wall and you'll find them lowing out and crying out and weeping for God to allow them to rebuild their temple once again. But that didn't come about through, through some type of disciplinary action. That came about through prophecy. But yet, to this day, they have a desire to see the temple, to see sacrifice reinstated. They don't talk about serving false gods and idols. They talk about the true and the living God. And really that's where we're at. The question is, have we strayed? And if we have strayed, will we return? And if we return, will we receive God's word? And if we receive God's word, I make you this promise. If we return as a church, as a people, if we return to God's word, to God's worship, to God's way, if we return, he will not only receive us, he will renew us, and he will restore us, and he will revive us. And we need revival in these end times. Now, Real quick, how many of you have your Bibles open? How many of you got your Bibles open? Look down, I'm not going into it. Look down at chapter two. Look at it close. Do you know what you see in chapter two? Nearly 120 names and places. How would you like to have to preach the next sermon on that? But through that, I found, I found some nuggets that God has touched my heart with. You've got to get this basic in you to understand what chapter two is all about. Because when you come together and I do preach on the next sermon in this series, you're going to be able to say, hey, we've now figured it out. God's revealing his word. So he's got a plan through all of that. And there's a purpose through all of that. And there's a reason why God put that list in that second chapter. And that's what we'll deal with on the next sermon. But right now we deal with this, on the brink of a new year. Is there anybody weary? Anybody worn out? Anybody that feel like I'm just not, not at the place that I feel like I'm as close to God? as I was at one time. Have you mistaken your purpose that you feel like your purpose is just the building, but the building was built to build us? Are we growing? Here's the strange thing. You can't stay the same. We either move forward or we go backward. We move up or we move down. 
But God won't allow us to stay the same. What do we want in the new year?